Wow. Rian. Rian, Rian, Rian. We did it. We did it. We, I mean, we made it to 100. This is our 100th ever episode, um, starting with an episode that we recorded in my living room when we started this about a year and a half ago. Um, half of that episode was spent telling my mother, I think, to keep the noise down while she was cooking in the background. <laughs> um, and I'm thinking back to where we both kind of had an idea for doing something more with our, our passion for soccer. Um, here we are. I'm just, I'm actually kind of amazed at how far like we've been able to take the overlap. Um, of course, with all the support from everyone listening. Um, so I just wanted to, I want to start with that, honestly, before we get into anything, primarily just thank everyone that's listened to the podcast. Um, you know, we've put a lot of obviously the effort into, into making this a quality educational and uh of course entertaining <laughs> session for all of you and um yeah i've got rian to thank for for jumping on and and doing this together with me so i'll start with that um rian and it's not my not that my was, usual that was, lovely. that was beautiful wow i can, I can be sweet at times i, I think <laughs> when, when i choose um yeah. but yeah the funny, the funniest, i think the funniest part about like the first the first episode was yes one one of them was yeah your mom like kind of walking <laughs> past and like and not being quite sure if she should walk like where she should walk and then um and then also i think that episode i feel like that episode was almost two hours uh, so it felt, oh yeah like, totally unhinged that was like totally unhinged that was like right no after, structure like, Copa america and i think the gold cup over the summer and and oh wow yeah that was uh that was really funny i don't want to ever listen to that episode again so <laughs> if you'd like for those wondering you can go all the way back to episode one it's listed there i'm sure the audio is less than amazing or <laughs> less than subpar probably um, oh god yeah easily. yeah but 100 episodes or 99 episodes later we made it we made it here um so thank you everyone we'll just we'll start and just say thank you uh, for all the support for all the love yeah I'll I'll leave it at that. I'm not gonna get too sappy, but <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, we unfortunately, the Rian and I did not spend the weekend together. Um, Rian decided that his girlfriend takes priority over me, which is just a farce. But you know, that's neither here nor there. Um, but I think Rian, we did both get to watch a little bit of footy over the weekend. I was pleasantly surprised at how La Liga went down, but that's again for another day. Let's focus on your team to start this 100th Centurion podcast. Rian, let's talk about the most boring game known to man or the most boring fixture the Premier League has <laughs> ever hosted, Chelsea, Manchester United. What the hell is wrong with both of these teams? Seriously. Don't – I know – no, 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 no. I think you – I know what you're going to say and that, oh, this is so much better than the game in October and, like, oh, there was at least some flair and, and whatever – Rian, it was the most boring first half I've ever won. I played FIFA for the last five minutes of that first half because I knew nothing was going to happen. Oh, oh, I don't, I don't believe you. Yeah, I don't believe, I don't believe you played FIFA at the, the last part of that first half. All right, but, fine, fine. My, but... my loss will serve for itself. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, I don't know. I don't – okay, I don't feel like it was – 
horrible. I thought the first half. I agree with you. They were probably after the first thirty minutes. The first thirty minutes were were interesting. I thought, and I thought there was some good stuff on both sides. But really, yeah, the last fifteen. Yeah, I, I thought the first fifteen minutes Chelsea were good, and they passed. They moved the ball really well, and I think the best chance was. Giroud's like diving header, which like he couldn't do anything more. <laughs> Literally couldn't do anything oh, more. Fair. Um, and then I, I guess I can't think of of a more clear United chance in the first half. But yeah, I think I think there's a tough thing with these two teams, and I think there are a lot of positives to take from this game from both sides. Like I thought from Chelsea's side, the back three was good, was really good again. And Andreas Christensen has filled in wonderfully for Thiago Silva, who's been out for the last month or so. So I think that's really, really positive for Chelsea. I think Antonio Rudiger has been better than I expected in this last month, too. The, with, the, with German, the German Mbappe in this game, basically. <laughs> yeah, he had a great, yeah, he had a one, like, really, really good run. <laughs> it was awesome. He, he had that great run, almost similar to uh, Kurt Zuma had a similar run against Ajax last season. In oh, the my Champions God, yeah. <laughs> Not quite the same type of run, but similar in the sense that uh, Rudiger took the ball from about half the center circle and drove through Man United's defense and, or sorry, their midfield and got to the box. And then you could tell that he had no clue what to do from there. <laughs> <laughs> and like immediately like passed it backwards or sideways <laughs> or something like that. Or, or no, I think he tried to like do, do a cross or something and it just didn't go well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nothing with nothing the product went well there. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess that was the biggest highlight of the first half outside of, like I said, uh, the diving header from Giroud. But outside of that, I thought United defended well. I thought Victor Lindelof played really well. Uh, Chelsea didn't really isolate Harry Maguire in any one-on-one, so that also a positive for for Manchester United. But at the end of the day, I think these two teams, you kind of look like the lack of quality in the final third from both sides, honestly. And... on Manchester United's side, there's the lack of quality in the build-up play. And, I mean, that's just been there pretty much the, well, yeah, for... Like, been there for say, years. Like, two years. At this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> last few years. Um, and on Chelsea's side, there's, like, a, la- a lack of of execution in the final third on their end. Um, it just, I don't know, it just shows you these two, how far off these two teams are from, I mean... Look, everyone's far off from Manchester City right now, but especially, like, that's kind of the biggest difference um, in what's going to make, I think, these two sides legitimate title contenders. I think that I just want to go back to what you're saying about this this game actually, or at least Chelsea specifically playing well in the first half. Okay, they played uh, well not the whole first half. No, no. I, I, okay, the first maybe like minutes. the first fifteen. I thought they were much 15, better in the 15. second half. I agree with you. I completely agree with you. But the, the reason why this game was very boring and it's evidenced by the XG, as Rian loves to cite, Chelsea's XG in the first half, point one. 
<laughs> United's XG in the first half, 0.03. <laughs> it was yeah. horrendous. So I will not be, I will be going to my grave mentioning and citing the fact that this is a horrible first half for, for a neutral fan. But let let me uh, let me just spend a second on Chelsea because you made a point about them at least being the somewhat more dominant side in the first fifteen minutes before things were pretty much neutral the rest of the first half. I don't know if I completely agree with that because I felt like when Chelsea lost the ball and they lost the ball a significant number of times in that first half that they were under pressure, like they were caught out. And I don't actually blame Rudiger or Christensen at all. Like, I think Christensen had a wonderful game, even though I think his wonderful game can be summed up by the fact that he didn't really have to do much, <laughs> which I think is probably just the standard good game. Um, but at the same time, I think that, and I mentioned this to Rian during the game, Conte and Kovacic were misplaced by Thomas Tuchel. I think that they were misplaced in the sense that they tried to play through the half spaces way too defensively. And whenever the ball came back to either Aspilicueta or Rudiger, Christensen especially, they were way too deep in trying to receive the ball. And all that allowed Manchester United to do, especially in that first half, was essentially press those two players and you're stuck in a corner, right? That's, that essentially led to them losing the ball. Like they would, they would try to play the ball to Conte and Kovacic and maybe they would get that pass off. But there's no outlet past that point because those both of those two defensive holding midfielders were being pressed like none other. Like, that's the one thing where I think Ole got that really, really right in this first half. In the second half, though, I think that completely changed. I think that you saw Conte and Kovacic in much more advanced positions, right, playing beyond the press, which, A, I think their passing improved, and, and that's certainly a big part of it, but B, I think positionally more anything they were set up to to succeed in that sense and obviously at some point you know rotations occurred sub substitutions came on um but that was i think the biggest change for why chelsea started to look a little better because they actually got the ball past the defensive midfield point and actually could get it not necessarily to Giroud, but early on in the second half they especially got to zeke who had a wonderful shot even though it was saved um and, and that's where i think chelsea started to look a little better yeah, I, and Ziyech had a really tough first half, I thought. Um, I mean, I, I'm not the only person who thought that, <laughs> to be honest. No, you looked no, at Twitter, and, uh, um, but I thought it was improved in the second half. I think the formation, it's very tough, I think, for him to fit into the the way that the three attackers are set up in, in this new system because... I thought a lot of the positive stuff that came from Ziyech in the first half of the season was coming in off of the right and doing those inward crosses, those in-swinging crosses from the right-hand side or using left foot and, and being able to dribble from that right wing area inside. And that space is now kind of taken up by whoever the right wing back is, right? So it's, it's I, I feel for him there because I, I don't think this necessarily suits him as a player that well but it's done wonders I think for Mason Mount and I think Christian Pulisic that is able to get a run of games might also enjoy a lot more freedom in this in this formation and and we'll see too what happens with Kai Havertz whenever he, when um, he comes back from his injury 
But I, again, at the end of the day, I think I think these both of these sides just kind of lack that's almost un, like I can't it's hard to describe, but like uh, those special moments, like those special moments of brilliance, and 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 I think United gets it on a more consistent basis than Chelsea as a team does right now, but that's because. I think of of Marcus Rashford and Bruno Fernandez are, are just more consistent um, producers of those special moments. But in these type of games where you're playing against another really good team, those chances are so much more scarce. And um, it's just neither of these two teams feel like they can produce those moments under pressure, I should say, um, and do it as a team. So like I said, you know, the individuals can obviously always take over a game, but uh, as a team, when you're playing, it's another team that is well coached. Like it's someone has to do something special to score a goal. And, and we just never got that in this game. Well, I mean, the counter argument to that is look at Chelsea's last game, right? That I think is a pretty good indicator Maybe it's a coaching change or something like that, but it's a pretty good indicator that the team has the quality to bring out those special moments. I mean, that was objectively a very Gir- special moment. Yeah, Gir- yes, yes. Uh, yeah, Giroud is <laughs> you not can't argue with that. Really, that's not really um, anyone that I think Chelsea fans or prior Arsenal fans would agree that they that they could routinely expect um, the special moments to come from Olivier Giroud. But you're right in the sense that that's what, that's where the goal came from in the end, at the end of the day, at the end of right, the game, right? right? Is, is that special moment happening? And it's, it's really um, unfair to describe just about any team and compare them to Manchester City right now, but I mean, a lot of the goals and a lot of the chances that City create, you know, as as well coached as they are, when they're in the final third, it's still a special pass or a special finish that come that ends up creating the goal, right? Like guys are in the right positions, of course, but like you just think about those Cancelo crosses over the last couple of weeks; those are just perfect crosses. And you think about their um, the Ruben Diaz goal over the weekend, where Kevin De Bruyne. It just does Kevin De Bruyne stuff, and the cross is perfect, and it's it's a great run. It's a great the side set up beautifully, but at the end of the day, it still needs the quality to create the openings themselves, and um and that's where these two teams I think are just especially Chelsea. I should say especially Chelsea. I think are just lacking in that execution in the final third. Um, whereas uh, yeah, like I said, United they need they need to more consistently get the build up to to put themselves in positions to try to create those special chances or special moments. That's fair. I think that's fair. I think Chelsea probably have an argument for better quality and higher talented individual players, whereas United look a little bit more like a side, not necessarily that are more well-coached at a whole cheese. No, I would never go that far. Um, But they're a player with, with, or they're a team with players that have, those moments of brilliance in them. And I'm not saying Chelsea don't, right? And especially in their new signings, but they haven't 
showed it yet. And I think that's, exactly. that's also a product of the team structure that they've been put in. And that's changed in the last two months. So, again, just to be cognizant of that. But, Riyadh, both these teams are very far off from City. Let's be honest. This is – it's not at all a comparison. I don't think it will be a comparison between now and all and, and the end of the season. Um, next season might be different when all of these teams have a summer to get through what hopefully will be a non-COVID world. But not even a comparison right now. So, why don't we move on, Rian, talk a little bit about – a team that all of a sudden started to look fantastic um, in the last few weeks, Arsenal. Um, they are, I think, for those that have been following the stock market news, um, the best personification of uh, the famous GameStop now. Uh, GameStop, wow. <laughs> I thought that was a Freudian slip. <laughs> I, I was completely unintended. Um, just complete up and down for absolutely no rhyme or reason. In some ways, I don't know what Mikel Arteta is thinking when he's on the touchline, but I would love to be in his head. But anyway, of course, a 3-1 win against Leicester. I think that this was more of an Arsenal win than it was a Leicester loss. I mean, we know about the injuries to Leicester, and we know how they've been... I think underratedly ravaged by injuries, not to the same degree that Liverpool have, but still to a significant degree. And for those who have not actually gone and read Rian's Substack article about Leicester and about money spent on signings, uh, et cetera, please go read it because it's fantastic. That is an objective ploy. If it was not, I would have told you all it's terrible, but it is actually really, really well written. Um, where Rian talks about Leicester in, in the context of all this. So my point being, Arsenal looked, good for the sake of the team that they are not because they were playing a depleted Leicester side thoughts on that I I would agree with it and I'd also say that the Arsenal side that started was not the best starting 11 for Arsenal either and and kind of confirmed the feeling that I've been getting the last couple of weeks that they are like 80 percent focused on the Europa League Right, as and as they as they should be, right? Considering their their um, standings in the table right now, but this was just a generally good, genuinely good win um, for Arsenal. And yeah, like you said, even even taking into account that uh, no James Madison, um, you know, Wesley Fofana has been injured, James Justin out for the rest of the season for Leicester, and throw on top of that, like midway through the second half, Harvey Barnes, who's been one of their two best players in the last few months is hurts his knee and he's out for six weeks now um but aside from all that like like i said it wasn't the full arsenal full strength arsenal 11 playing either so it, i think one of the things that it kind of opened my eyes to or yeah something that I was not totally sure of before this game was that Arsenal do have better depth than Leicester even even with all the turmoil of of the last year or so um they still have better options to come off the bench than than Leicester and they thoroughly outplayed and really just just really took apart Leicester and 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 a bit of a renaissance from Nicola Pepe these last, these last, like this last month, pretty much, um, he's had four out of his last five games. He's had 
at least four shot creating actions, which did not happen in any stretch last season in, in no five game stretch. So he's looked very positive this past weekend. He was giving fits to the right, to the left side of, of Leicester's defense. Um, I thought he was positive when he came on in Arsenal's comeback against um, Benfica on, on Thursday in the Europa League. And I mean, man, if they can get, if they can get some production there, um, or even just just some stability in terms of uh, being able to chop and change that right side, then like that that goes a long way to probably saving money in the future for Arsenal, and also just maybe being able to play Willian less, who to his credit had two assists over the weekend. But but I mean, if if there's ever uh, an example that assists are can be a kind of noisy stat you just have to watch like a willian play over this past season and and get that those five assists are just just passes before a goal for the most part so um yeah no elisa give me your thoughts on on uh on arsenal recently and and I guess if she if we should start being concerned slightly for Leicester. Um. So let me start with Arsenal because I think I, I want to touch on Nicola Pepe. Yes, but I also want to touch on Odegaard, not for the Spanish roots, mm. just for the fact that I think Arsenal actually gained the the Mesut Ozil esque player that they were missing, and I think Arsenal fans, re- <clears throat> excuse me, realized that on Saturday morning when they woke up and realized, oh, guard can actually play the ball forward and make progressive runs and really run past defenders, um, which is something that, unfortunately, you know, your players like Ceballos cannot do. Granit Xhaka (laughs) does not have the technical ability to overcome. So Martin Odegaard, I think, is going to slowly but surely start to make a name for himself in this team between now and the end of the season um when his when his loan is up but let's talk about arsenal as a whole because nicola pepe has scored now what i think five goals in the premier league and three in the europa league and while it's not like he's having an outrageously you know goal scoring tear on the season he scored in pretty critical moments and i think that their tie or the europa league tie against olympiacos now a team that i think arsenal fans will probably rather cover their eyes in horror over um, given what happened last season, but everything that happened last season has a chance to now be erased in some ways. If someone like Nicola Pepe, just go with me for a second, can show up and score the game winning or tie breaking goal in that two legged affair, you're talking about a player that's really stepping up in a moment that Arsenal in my opinion, don't have a true winger outside of him and William, or true wingers. So I think that Nicolo Pepe's moment of reckoning is coming. I just, I want to be hesitant about actually just (laughs) claiming him right now. Right. And, 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 And look, right now, Bukayo Saka is the most important player on Arsenal and, and the biggest chance creator he he is the most the most bright player on, on Arsenal's side right now. Like who 
you watch that game against Benfica, at the end of the day, who makes the pass? Who makes that pass? That pass, it's not easy, by the way. Granted, he was given probably too much space to make the, the cross to Aubameyang himself, but when they needed that special moment of quality, it's coming from Bukayo Saka right now. I mean, even the, the first goal in that that game, uh, Aubameyang's first goal in that game also came from a great pass from Bukayo Saka. So I, I'm not going to sit here and say that, yeah, Pepe, Nicola Pepe is going to, or has a chance to become, you know, Arsenal's main chance creator or or most important chance creator because that's yeah already taken by Saka right now. And, and I think Odegaard going forward will probably be more influential in that sense. But the thing that, Pepe has been doing so well recently is just like you said, being being more traditional winger, running at players and and being put in positions where he has space too. I think this past weekend, the big difference on that right side is Cedric is doing a lot more overlaps than Hector Bellerin has been in the times that he has played at right back, especially with Nicola Pepe. Um, I think a lot of the times Bellerin comes inside a bit like an inverted winger or inverted fullback in that in that sense but um look the fullback the the runs made by Cedric really open up space for Pepe to try to run sideways in into the into the penalty box and and into that kind of number 10 area so i i think he just needs just needs a foundation and over these past few weeks like he's been put in really good positions to be dangerous and and you're seeing that with his shot creating action so best of luck to him honestly you don't want to see anyone be labeled like a flop or anything right so i think i think we're starting to see a bit more of a of a pathway for him to be a a influential player on on arsenal for sure 100 percent. i think that's the direction we're going it's just that you have to remember right that it's not a player scoring 20 goals a season yet. So um, maybe there's still a window to, to do that for him if he really wants in, in all competitions. Even, even if there isn't, even if that does never right, happens, right. if it's a player that can chip in double-digit goals a season, great. I mean, you'll, you'll always say that the price tag wasn't worth it, but he'll, that's still a very important player to a squad. Oh, if you're scoring double-digit goals, I mean, yeah, you're you're a probably important, but goals are not everything. They're, right. They never were. They never were. Um, but yeah, I think Arsenal are in a better position than Leicester right now in terms of form and just in terms of well, purely bodies that they have on the field at this point. Um, but at the same time, Leicester are in a better table position, right? And long term. I don't know if Arsenal have. Oh, uh, I, I just don't think that they have the the players that they need yet. You know, L- Leicester have the players that they need, despite the fact that they're half them are injured. They have those players available um, between now and the end of the season. It's not like they're all season ending. Arsenal, on the other hand, are purely running on form. Form comes and goes. The talent doesn't. That that's just it's my theory, and I can't. I have no reason to to change from that. So I think yeah. Leicester are probably still in a better overall position, honestly. Right. Yeah. I, I don't, this game doesn't hasn't changed my opinion on where these teams on who right. will finish above above the other, honestly. Um, yeah. But yeah, just to 
you know, not not panic time yet for for Lester, but you know, there there is always a possibility. Like with the with the schedule being what it is, and and they're probably going to feel more relieved about not being in the Europa League um, than not. You know, it, it sucks the way they went out uh, going out to a team that I don't think any of us feel is as good as them, but. Um, I think they'll look back and, and be happier that they didn't have these Thursday games in this crazy condensed season too, right? Where a lot of the other teams that are chasing them now, Chelsea, Liverpool, um, excluding Everton, but Tottenham and, and Arsenal are still in Europe. So it's the, it's the, they, they need, they need the advantages that they can get right, to stay in that top four. For sure. For sure. Well, with Leicester being in a better position than Arsenal, I think, in our, both of our humble opinions, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break and then talk about a team that's in the best position out of all the teams in England because it's not even a comparison. And we'll do a quick Premier League roundup. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's talk a little about the Death Star that continues to roll on in England and seemingly just doesn't care who you are, um, but will kill you in whatever fashion and whatever way is feasible for them. Of course, we're talking about Manchester City making it now 20 wins in a row as of time of recording, recording on a Tuesday, and they are coming off a win against Wolves. Or is that now 21? No, I believe it's 20. It's 21 now. Oh, it is 21. It is 21. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so it's 21 wins in a row now. Um, Of course, beating Wolves tonight, 4-1. Wolves probably were the closest. I don't know about the earlier run of games, but in the recent memory, probably the closest they got to dropping points (laughs) against City. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, shout out to them. I mean, they ended up losing 4-1 until because <laughs> they conceded three goals in the last 12 minutes or so. so yeah. I think um, West, I think, I think, well, we'll get onto it anyway. Well, that's what I was going to yeah. say. Why don't you, why don't you take it from here, right? West Ham did actually put up a fight, right? I mean, they lost 2-0. 2-1. Um, 2-1, uh, excuse me, um, to West Ham. So it, they did put up a fight, but... Did you ever really feel like this game was going to get away from City? I, I know West Ham and have obviously been in such good form, making it into the top four uh, as you know the past weekend. But do you, did you really? I, I don't know if I ever felt like this game was getting away from City. No, I never felt like it was getting away. I I will say that I think West Ham's goal that was deserved. I, I thought the first half they were good. They played well against City, and, and they picked and they got themselves into really good scoring positions. Um, but after it went to 1-1, it, they never really threatened City again. Um, and ultimately, Manchester City's goals both come from their starting center backs and Ruben Diaz and, and John Stones. Two two pretty good finishes. Uh, I touched on already that the first goal, which is just a great, a wonderful pass from, from Kevin De Bruyne. And then the second goal is... Great stuff from from Riyad Mahrez and then uh, and Riyad Mahrez and I think Kyle Walker and um, and John Stones with a really good finish for for center back especially so 
this was probably the first game where I, on the balance of play, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been out of the, out of the question that this game ended in a draw, honestly. But, um, but it doesn't matter right now. I mean, they're finding ways to, to score um, and they're coming up with those moments um, and finding the right pass or making the right run, playing the right ball. They're, they're doing it when the pressure is on right now. And, and they haven't trailed a single minute in their last 19 Premier League games. <laughs> it's, it's just, they're, it's like another level. <laughs> <laughs> that's insanity. My God, I didn't know that stat, but I guess if you, yeah, if you look at it, that makes perfect sense. I mean, the, the one thing that I actually learned about City this game had nothing to do with their attacking flair. It had nothing to do with their creative players, your Gundawans, Bernardo Silva's, and Kevin De Bruyne is the world. Had nothing to do with the fact that Gabriel Jesus is actually turning on form and could potentially actually take over for Sergio Aguero in, in the long term. Two more term. goals today. Exactly. Goals. It also had nothing to do with the fact that City have squad depth in Ferran Torres, you know, Sterling, Riyad Mahrez, that would terrorize almost any team in world football. I learned in the last 20 games from Manchester City that their two most important players and two most important positions are their two center backs. I learned that because, I mean, goals aside from West Ham uh, in this past weekend, I learned that because I think that if you have a center back pairing for Manchester City that either A, concedes maybe three to five more goals in the last 20 games, or you have a center back pairing that is not consistently starting like they were were not last season with the, the fluctuation of different pairings and different players and Fernand, you know, Fernandino basically playing center back. You you basically break down City's whole structure because City start by a playing out of the back. So what do you need in a center back? You need one with very strong technical um, abilities and and great footwork, ball vision, etc. That Ruben Diaz and I would argue has more than John Stones, but Ruben Diaz and John Stones have. What else is a Manchester City center back needs uh, need? Absolute dominance in the physical aspect of the game like i mean not just in height but also in physically being able to chase down players like for example um god blanking on names right now who 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 is our player of the year someone Uh, who's one of our players of the year choices Mm. jack Grealish. could have been Jack about last season no, 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 this is, I'm, I'm blanking on the name. Anyway, let's take Jack Grealish, for example, right? I, I feel as though with the, the pace that teams with Metro City on the counter, you need very physical center backs like Ruben Diaz and John Stones. If you look at the top six uh, teams in the Premier League, you cannot identify a better center back pairing that embodies both of those two qualities better than Ruben Diaz and John Stones. That's my ultimate point. And you can talk about 
this winger is better than that winger has has more goals, more shots on target, and shot creation, etc. But if you don't have the that center back pairing to keep the ball away from their net, you're you, like as I'm telling you, as Pep operates and as how Manchester City operates, you lose almost everything. And I get now why um, why Pep and why basically all of the oil money went towards center backs in the last like three years because without a strong partnership that the whole thing falls apart. So that's all. That's my point about city. Not, it has nothing to do with the fact that they've won 20 games in a row. It's just, it's more about why and how they got to that point. Yeah. And then like we've, we've talked about how they, how they're playing slightly differently, um, especially their setup to guard against the counter attack, which, um, which I think is like the biggest, which you know, if you're a betting man on, on the Champions League, that that aspect of City's development as a squad and, and um, as just a tactical setup is just about the best thing that could have happened if you're if you were betting on them to win the, the Champions League in terms of being able to handle the two of the toughest counter pressing and and dangerous counterattacking teams where I think it's it in PSG and uh, Bayern. Yeah, this team looks looks so solid. Just looks so solid all over. Even when they're leading games by one 0 as they were today against Wolves, um, I know that eventually the equalizing goal happened, but there was no point leading up to that Connor Cody goal that I felt city were going to lose control of the game at any point and even when even after it went to 1-1 like they didn't lose control of the game um yeah their ability to to completely handcuff teams right now and and you, it's just really difficult to counter attack and that was they were like the death star they were the death star in the past too but <laughs> the blueprints was as soon as you win the ball run at them and that was like the blueprint that almost everyone used and worked more often than not last season and and this year they've we don't know what the what the um what the fail safe or the fail point is in in this structure right and and we probably won't see it until we get to a little deeper in the champions league honestly but um yeah there's there's zero flaws in this team right now and um and it, and it feels different to the side that I think won their last 18 Premier League games to to hold off Liverpool a couple of seasons ago. I mean that was more that was a more intense um, atmosphere that they were doing that in, but but this feels like far more controlled and uh, and just scarier because of that control. Yeah, I think that you hit the nail on the head. It feels scarier. It feels more dominant. It feels like this this will not get away from them. That's that's the scary part about this Manchester City side. Um, it's kind of interesting how this coincided with Pep deciding to stay. They're dipping form, and all of a sudden, it's like they hit the turbo jets, and there's just no looking back. It's just yeah. there's there's a narrative there that I don't want to get into, but it's one that is very new for him. Yeah, and don't and don't underestimate the. CAS hearing over the summer that, yeah. that exonerated them of 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 um being kicked out of the Champions League for a couple seasons and and don't forget that there were 
a lot of teams in the Premier League, including the rest of the big six, that like basically wrote petitions to make sure that they get kicked out of the Champions League. <laughs> so so don't underestimate the 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 mental aspect of well, fuck everyone then. <laughs> They're gonna have that they had going into this season, and especially they'll probably have towards UEFA as a whole um, mm. for the rest of the Champions League. This is this is the most Bane Batman esque character arc I think I can imagine in quite a long time, <laughs> and they're they're living their best lives. That's all I'll say. Yeah, there's a lot of spite. There's there's a lot of spite in this play right now. So yeah, that's it. That's it. But City will go on more than likely to win the league unless something absolutely drastic happens. Looks like five thirty eight's model is looking more correct by the day when it comes to the Premier League, when it comes to the Champions League, all over the place. Absolute mess. Um, but, round, why don't we do a quick roundup before we wrap up of the Premier League, talk a little Spurs, Liverpool, maybe some Everton as well. Let's, let's start with Spurs. Um, of course, coming out strong over the weekend, um, putting, putting up multiple goals. I believe they scored four over the weekend. Um, this is the one of the games I was not able to watch, but it's nice to see that Gareth Bale is recreating his uh, 2018 Champions League final performance by scoring two goals, uh, this time as a starter rather than a sub, and uh, of course doing it against real, real top opposition in uh, in England oh, as Spurs okay. playing this weekend. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, very, very difficult for Spurs to get past. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, Mr. Party Pooper. Um... <laughs> <laughs> how dare you the, the the man has been basically out to lunch for like three years <laughs> golf golf man golf yes right. yes yeah of course of course <laughs> um <laughs> and you know the last few games the last few weeks he's looked like uh, i'm not gonna say back to himself he doesn't look like the player <laughs> he doesn't look at the, that like the player he was in his prime at real madrid we're not close to that obviously but um, he looks like a useful player again, and and that's what was missing the first half, two thirds of this season, and and obviously that's what was missing the last two years in in Madrid. But yeah, um, I can do nothing but but uh, applaud Gareth. He he has four goals in his last four games and three assists in that time too, so he's already doubled his assist and goal tally for the entire season just from the last three weeks and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna speculate on on what this means for tottenham's finish in the premier league because i think that's still going to be extremely difficult for them in terms of finishing in the top four at least but looking at it from the europa league side i mean they a useful gareth bale is really dangerous in a knockout format where it will be a much more comfortable atmosphere to play on the counter and play the tactics that Mourinho wants knows so well. And uh, a front three of Gareth Bale, Huminson, and Harry Kane on the counter, that's really dangerous. And that's something that can really hurt teams in a knockout stage so yeah i mean i completely agree the the one 
I think the reason why they basically brought back Gareth Bale is for that reason, right? Is that they had counterattacking threats in Sun and Mora, I would say, especially. Um, but they didn't have someone to necessarily... I don't want to call Gareth Bale depth, right? I don't want to call him a bench warmer, but he's someone that's a little different. He He's more of a natural winger than either of those two. And I would argue that he's probably, on his day, maybe you disagree with me, but I think he's a better goal scorer on uh, just in terms of individual talent. So then, then, then either Hungman Son or Lucas Mora. I'm not saying that. Definitely Lucas Mora. Yeah. And, I, and I think there's an argument to be made for Hungman Son, but maybe it's hard to make that argument this season for sure. But, but right. when you talk about pure goal scoring ability and finishing yeah. ability, yeah, Gareth, yeah. I, I would say he's right up. He's at least, I think, on the same <laughs> <goal>. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think that's best evidenced by by Spurs' last, basically their last four games. I mean, other than the loss against West Ham, um, right, their last four games, they have scored a total of 13 goals, right? And, well, yeah, they did concede three, but, and two of them were against West Ham, but they've, outscored Wolfsburg in the Europa League 4-1. They beat Wolfsburg again 4-0. They beat Burnley 4-0. Again, opposition they should be beating, but in in a convincing manner, right? And that's probably the most important part about what Spurs needed right now, especially after the Everton loss and even more importantly after the City loss, coming back into form by really <laughs> doing the most anti-Mourinho thing you can do and scoring this many goals on a consistent basis. Um that I think will help this team. Will help certainly Gareth Bale, um, as Gareth Bale helps this team with with the goals that he's providing. In I would argue pretty pretty crucial moments. Um, not necessarily I guess crucial teams like Burnley, but like crucial moments of the game is what I meant. So yeah. Well, at least from London, shall we go on to? How the team from Liverpool prepared this weekend. They played Sheff- Liverpool played Sheffield United. They won two nil. Um, yeah, but okay, if they, had, if they hadn't won, look, like, yeah, then... look, yeah. The, the, the then we need to was, have a discussion. The result was all was always you know more pretty obvious, but um, it, they had a tough time in the first half, and then second half, you know, Bobby Firmino gets his goal on some great, great footwork and more, not more importantly, because I think, I think it's important that Firmino starts putting the ball in the back of the net, um, not on a consistent basis, but, but he need definitely on a more consistent basis that he has for the rest of the season. Um, no, Curtis Jones, again, uh, he scored, he scored in that game and just have to give, give him flowers again here. Cause he's, I really think he's the most important midfielder in um, for Liverpool right now. I mean, you can argue, I think, Jordan Henderson. You can argue Fabinho, obviously, too. But, um, no, he was fantastic again. And it's just really impressive what he's doing at his age in his first full season. We have to remember that he's still just 20 years old. And this is – last season he got some games in, but this season is really his breakout. Well, maybe – I mean, I don't want to say it's his breakout season. It's just his first full season. Like his breakout season might be next year. Who knows? But, um, but in terms of breaking into the eleven and, and being 
a player that Jurgen Klopp can legitimately rely on, I think he's shown that this year, and and that's really impressive. And I think he's got an outside, a very outside chance of making it to the uh, Euros for for England. I I think he has an outside chance. Yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to say that he's going. But it could be one of those scenarios where you're missing so many players in the England squad due to injury. Curtis Jones is absolutely not a bad replacement whatsoever. Um, if Mason Greenwood can go, Curtis Jones can go. That that should be my moral high ground that I keep myself to. Um, but the one thing about Liverpool that this is more just general commentary, not about the game against Sheffield, because I think after the second half kicked off, it was game over basically. But... I would love to see a player like Gerard Moreno for Villarreal play striker for Liverpool. I think what Bobby Firmino does really well is he is a great point person for both hold-up play and for getting behind defenders. But I don't think he does one quality or one piece of that um, play as a striker better than the other. I think he's just decent at both where I think Liverpool need a striker that's very good at scoring goals, but also a striker that can press that can run that's physical. Firmino does some of that. It's just that he's lacking goals right now. And it's not anything down to, I would argue, um, you know, his, his physicality or anything. I think it's just down to his positioning and where in between the center backs he sits. Cause he usually sits a lot deeper towards Liverpool's midfield line than he does beyond the center backs. I think maybe that's just a radical argument that I would make that a, a new striker, perhaps like Gerard Moreno, could, could fit Liverpool's style really well. Well, I, I think you're right in the sense that definitely another striker is needed for Liverpool because the, the drop- I do forget Diego between... Jota, by the way. That, that's, <laughs> fair, that's fair, that's fair, that's um, fair. That's obviously fair. But I, I think his best position is is one of those wingers on the side who who runs beyond whoever is playing center forward um, for Liverpool. Although, yeah, he did show a couple of times that he can play in that same position as as Firmino and link up play. It was still good with uh, Salah and, and Mane. But I, I think you're right in the sense that, wow, Jared Moreno, that would be a fantastic second striker to have and would provide legitimate competition to Firmino. And and it'd probably make it would probably be make both of them better players. Well, it'll probably get even better performances from from Firmino, or that would be the hope that with the competition that that um the performances become better on a consistent basis. But even if Firmino has to come out of this, the eleven, like I mean Moreno would be a great second striker to have. But overall point, yeah, I I think this summer Liverpool needs to legitimately bolster their depth in in the attack because that's that's what we've seen is one of the things that we've seen for Liverpool this season is that Salamane and um Firmino have had to play a lot a lot of minutes and there was a point I mean they lost four games in a row before before this win versus Sheffield United um but basically, January through most of February, they looked gassed for the most part, and and uh, I think that's probably Liverpool's a bigger regret than than even getting more center backs going into the season because they couldn't do anything about the injuries there. But they'll they'll probably feel 
some regret to not bolstering the attacking uh, squad of players. Completely agreed. Completely agreed. So, Rihanna, why don't we move on to our last point about Everton just quickly. Um, They're slowly but surely making a shout to be a top four team. I know we talked about at the beginning of the season that the chances, especially based on form, were pretty decent. I think for both of us to some degree, more so for you, there is some recency bias. But at the same time, it's not like this Everton team don't have quality. So where do you stand on them potentially being top four, um, of course, after their win against Southampton? Yeah, they're they're so hard to um, they're really hard to judge. Honestly, uh, I, I thought they played better than Southampton for most of the game. The last fifteen ish minutes were really really testy. Um, Southampton probably should have equalized on on one or two of their chances. Especially, uh, I think Genepo had a really really good chance um, with about fifteen ish minutes left in the game, but. It's it's three wins in their last, looking at nine games here. And, and so, three wins and two draws and four losses. <laughs> so, it's, they're, they're not consistent still, um, but the nature of how this season has gone and, and how many teams are struggling for a consistent run of form outside of Manchester City, they were able to gain ground over the weekend where, you know, Chelsea and United dropped points. Well, well Drew, not, not necessarily dropped points. Um, Leicester losing to Arsenal. West Ham, who are sitting in fourth right now, losing to Manchester City. So they were able to gain ground. And, and they play Chelsea next Monday after Chelsea plays Liverpool this upcoming Thursday. So they've, they're going to be right. Well, there's still 12 games left in the season. So, so I don't want to say right now they're going to be there and at the end, but they're within striking distance. If they can get, they, they had Allen come back recently. They can get him and James Rodriguez and Calvert Lewin and Richarlison, who scored another really nice goal in Southampton then maybe then maybe they can they can really have a sustained push because they're not playing in Europe so they'll be able to actually rest and recover once the schedule gets a bit more normal in the last couple months of the season so yeah i think the, i think the possibilities for everton right now are still still very much up in the air i think i think there's a path for them to finish in the top 4 and and at worst, finish in fifth, right? I think there. I think there's a pathway for them to even to be able to get into the top five, but uh, it, it's just hard to see the consistency right now. We I need to see it more. And um, they're right now. They're they're great. They're a scrappy team, and they're they're taking advantage of the chances that they've had recently. And that that's about as good as you can do in this weird weird season yeah no you make a good point and i mean i I agree i think there's a path right but there's also a path for chelsea and they're 
probably is likely a path for Liverpool. Liverpool and Everton, of course, are on the same number of points, and Chelsea one above, and West Ham one above that. But what really separates those three to four sides, you know, between fourth and seventh, is their upcoming schedule. And Everton's isn't exactly pretty, you know what I mean? Like, Everton have Chelsea... Uh, next Monday, like you said, then they play, I believe it's City in the quarterfinals of the FA Cup. Then they have Spurs, Arsenal, Villa, West Ham, Wolves, and City. I don't know if they're getting past all of those games with enough enough points um, to make it into, into the top five. They're probably not going to make it through that with more than, I would say, three to four wins max. Yeah, so, I mean, and and that's, and and that's like close to the end of the season, right? Like they, they have a chance to, they have a game in hand right now on on Chelsea and and Liverpool, and right? Only one point behind Liverpool, and uh, I think one point behind Chelsea as well. They they have West Brom coming up, and that's not going to be easy because that's well, well, it's a Sam Allardyce team. It's not going to be easy, and and West Brom for the most part haven't been easy to beat. But and most teams are beating them, obviously. But they're in a relegation battle, so that the motivations there will be just as, if not more intense, um, when they play Everton. And then after Chelsea, though, they they have a chance to pick up if they get three wins out of three when playing Burnley, Crystal Palace, and Brighton. Then they'll be in a great position going to that tough stretch. But you're right, you know that that's kind of the business end of the season, and that's what will make or break their their bid for Europe. It's almost like things might come down to the last weekend. What a concept. <laughs> anyway. Well, I think that wraps up the 100th episode of The Overlap, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you again for all the support, all the love. We'll keep bringing you the best content around Spain, England, and the rest of Europe. I hope I don't have to talk about the Champions League ever again from a Barcelona perspective. And I hope something terrible happens to Chelsea next week, but neither here nor there. Anyway, with that, thank you as always, everyone. And we'll, uh, we'll be back soon. Thanks, guys.